0: I am grateful uh, to be with you today, thankful to Austin, entrusting to me this opportunity to preach his word. Surprisingly to me, uh, but perfect in the sovereignty of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians one, fifteen through twenty. God's word reads He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So reads the word of the living God. A question for you to ponder. Is anything worth defending that does not first capture your heart with delight? Is anything worth defending that doesn't first capture your heart with delight? It's been well said, happy are those who dare to defend what they love. And C.S. Lewis said, one can't always be defending the truth. There must be time to feed on it. With these thoughts, we bridge back to the first century with our brother in Christ, the Apostle Paul Paul who is writing this from a prison cell, on account of his faith and ministry in Christ, he ends this letter to the Colossians saying, remember my chains. But he wrote this letter because a fellow brother in Christ, Epaphras, came to him in prison notifying Paul, of this young church in Colossae, struggling. Struggling because they were facing false teaching that diminished the person and work of Jesus Christ. False teaching that asserted that Christ was prominent but not preeminent over the church and for the church and in the church. They had the idea that to Christ needed to be added human philosophy mixed with a little Jewish legalism and spiritual mysticism. Yet if we cross again to the bridge of time and enter back into our moment, we face these same issues today. We see all around us We may be tempted to join in on Christless Christianity, any Christianity that's not built upon the foundation of the gospel of the glory of Christ, teaching that Christ alone is not sufficient. We need something else or someone else or to do other things, opposing worldviews that take Christ out of the center or his word as non-authoritative or just the quest for spiritual experiences that denies the sufficiency of Scripture. These temptations, these issues that were facing the church in Colossae are all around us still today. So in this Holy Spirit-inspired, polemical letter, the Apostle Paul is defending the truth and refuting error for this church, but he does so in a way that surpasses mere argumentation. Through this refutation of error, he gives declaration of beautiful truth, because the truth is beautiful, and his name is Jesus. Young Christian, as you defend the faith, especially in the college context, the goal is not merely to be right, but for people to rightly know Christ and to rightly set him forth. The message is Christ. The Spirit-anointed Son from the Father is our all-sufficient Savior because He is the all-supreme Lord. And that timeless truth is still real now, as it always will be. When I say the supremacy of Christ, I mean that Jesus is above all. He has the highest authority, the greatest power. He is the incomparable. He is the best. The highest position, the highest power, the greatest person. He is king above all. When I speak to the sufficiency of Christ, I'm getting at that Jesus is enough. He's more than enough. He is all that is needed and necessary for your salvation, for your preservation, throughout your slow sanctification and everlasting for the delight of our souls. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is what this letter is all about. And garnering an understanding of this text before us helps us to grasp that core message of Colossians and really the whole of life itself. This text answers the most important questions life offers, but the most important one who is Jesus Christ? Four times we see in this text the words, He is. In five times, all things. This text shows us the person and message of Jesus didn't actually begin in the manger. It gives us the true view of Christ in relation to eternity as the eternal Son of God and everything else. And this passage casts down the notion of needing anything else for the security, comfort, and confidence of our souls. This text, for sure is highly theological and cosmic but this high view of Christ really reaches down to the daily ground of our lives this text such as this helps our faith to be anchored informs our worldview defines our purpose and animates confident persistence as we follow the Lord Jesus to put it plainly colossians 1:15 through 20 sets forth the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ so that we'd cling to him in faith and worship. This text sets forth the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ so that we'd cling to him in faith and worship. In other words, King Jesus is enough for us, church. He's supreme in all things, central in everything, and sufficient for all those who come to him in faith. Let's look firstly to verses 15 through 17, the supremacy of Christ over creation the supremacy of Christ over creation. Verse 15 reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And this undeniably is referring to the Lord Jesus. If we look back just two verses in Paul's prayer for the Colossians, he really ends it with truth. That's the basis of his prayer for them. He says in Colossians 1.13, He's speaking of the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, in whom we have redemption. We have redemption in Jesus. He sets us free from the curse and bondage of the law of sin and slavery to it. We have redemption in him because he is our redeemer. And in our redemption, we're set free from bondage to sin and forgiven of all of our sins in Christ because he is that sacrifice. He bore our sins. In this verses 13 and 14, it really extols the triune nature of our redemption. This text inspired by the Holy Spirit, we come to faith by the work of the Spirit. It's according to the sovereign will of our God and Father through Christ, our Redeemer. Jesus is the eternal, beloved, and begotten Son of God, the King of the kingdom of God, our only Redeemer and the one in whom we have forgiveness. And verse 15 goes on, says, He is the image of the invisible God. What this text is telling us is that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Scripture teaches in Jesus, and speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well, says God is spirit, invisible and immortal and immaterial, but the unseen God is made visible in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, because he is the living word. As John 1 says, the perfect expression and exact representation and revelation of God who makes him known. Our 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when God opens up our eyes spiritually to see the glory of Christ in the gospel, what we behold is the glory of God in the face of Christ. Or Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Like the shine of the sun, Jesus is the shine, the brightness of the very glory of God. He is the glory of God. He said to his, just to his disciples, Philip, in John 14, who says, just show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus says, have you not been with me so long, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father because he is the image of the invisible God. And this is good news to you, Christian. It's good news because there's no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. There's no God the Father behind Jesus that is cruel and mean and the Son has to bring him down. We sing of the Father's love for us. We sing of the Father's mercy and grace and kindness. It's fully expressed and seen in the glory of his Son. The goodness and glory that we love in Jesus is the goodness and glory of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. And this image language should also make us think back to Genesis 1, right? Adam and Eve made in the image of God. And we are image bearers of God, made to represent God and image forth his glory in the world as we commune with him. But Jesus is the real thing. He's not made in the image of God. He eternally is the image of the invisible God. Michael Reeves said the image of God in us is a reflection or copy of the image of God, Christ. And this matters because every single one of you are image bearers of God, made with intrinsic dignity and value. And for sure, spoiled, marred by the fall, we are sinners by nature and choice. But what this tells us is our only hope of wholeness as image bearers of God, our only hope of restoration is in Christ, the image of the invisible God. You glorify God and become a better you when you're more like Christ. Christian God has predestined that you be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. And as you behold the glory of Jesus, you are transformed into his same image from one degree of glory to another. As image bearers, we have to behold him, the image of the invisible God. Verse 15 is telling us we see exactly what who God is, and what God is like when we look at Jesus Christ. Verse 15 continues. It says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn over all creation. And what this absolutely does not mean is that Jesus is a part of creation, but made first. It doesn't mean anything like that. This word that Paul uses here indicates that Jesus has a superior status. This is about status, not chronology. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation because he has a superior status. In the context of this time, the special and superior status of the firstborn received the family inheritance, whether Jewish or Gentile in the Roman Empire, Solomon was the firstborn of David, not because he was his firstborn son, but because he was the next king. He had that superior special status. In this text, when it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it's it's exalting and extolling Jesus, who is the Son of God and God the Son and the Father's royal heir. A cross-reference for you is Psalm 89, verse 27, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the Anointed One. God says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest kings of the earth. This is getting at that Jesus is superior in his status and his authority over all creation. He is the highest king. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and king over creation. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because all things belong to him. He's the highest king. It's under his royal reign that is directed by his self-giving love. It's all under his royal reign that is defined by his grace. His royal, holy, loving reign. You, me, the universe, or even something like time, The whole of your life is an entrusted stewardship from King Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, the highest king, the king of kings over all the earth. And verses 16 and 17 support these truths of verse 15, pressing us deeper into Christ's supremacy over creation. Look with me to verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Creation is one act of the triune God with one indivisible divine will and power. The Father is the initiating cause, the Son is the operating cause, and the Spirit is the perfecting cause Creation itself is from the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit. And verse 16 emphasizes the role of Christ in creation. Christ in Genesis 1-1, by him all things have been made. Christ is supreme over creation because he is on the side of creator. It's by him. We don't credit Creation to Mother Nature or to some causeless Big Bang. We look to Creator Jesus. You know, growing up, I was amazed uh, by toys or clothes labeled made by China or Indonesia or America or just wherever. Because it was like I have something in California, in Los Angeles. That's made somewhere completely else. How did it get here with me? I was just amazed by that as a kid. But in a real sense, every single thing in this world, everything that you see, everyone you know, every person you don't know could have a stamp on their backs that say, made by Christ You, me, every person, every ethnicity, Mount Everest, the ocean, the Grand Canyon, food, the sun, the moon, the stars, all things made by him. Look at Paul's description. He says in heaven and on earth, things in heaven like angels. The paradise that Jesus told the thief on the cross he's going to. On earth. Every single thing, molecules, atoms, everything on this planet, all things have their creative origin from Christ. Creatives, the most creative people in this room even, are created by him. The text says visible and invisible. Every mountain, every waterfall, every person you love, every animal, every nation. In our beautiful ethnic diversity, created by him. Invisible, invisible. Gravity, the air you breathe, our thoughts, our emotions created by him. Verse 16 goes on, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether angelic spiritual powers, spiritual dictators, kings, governments, presidents. Paul is just stockpiling words here to say Jesus is creator, authoritative king and supreme over them. Colossians 2.10 tells us he's head of all rule and authority. We put it like this, even the Supreme Court will bow and is accountable to the all-supreme Lord Jesus. Whatever political party or system you prefer, Jesus is supreme king. Ultimately, Christian, it's not this side or that side, it's are you on his side, the side of the Lord. The message is Believe and bow your heart, bow your knee to Christ, this great creator and king who reigns with self-giving love. I think it's timely for our generation, our world right now, to just say the universe does nothing for you. Crystals do nothing for you. The month you're born and how it correlates with planets does nothing for you. It's created by Christ. It all comes from Him. And we align ourselves with the groaning for glory creation and the cosmos when we treasure and confess that Jesus is Lord. For we both originate and depend upon Him. And the more we believe and treasure Jesus, really the more wondrous creation becomes. General revelation does testify to the glory of God. It testifies that all of this comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine walking into a museum and you see a random but beautiful work of art by someone you don't know. Now imagine walking into that same museum and seeing a beautiful piece of art but it's made by your best friend. Isn't that experience just a little different? The artwork comes to life the more you know the creator and the artist. And when you love them, the art has greater value. We should look upon every beautiful flower, every fellow human being and image bearer, the stars in the sky, the beautiful sunsets, knowing the one who created them is our Savior, King Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us. We know him, and he knows us. And knowing all things have been created by Christ really trivializes but deepens sins such as ungratefulness, objectifying lust of people, ethnic partiality, or suppressing the truth of God told to us in creation, generally, or Scripture especially. All things are by him, overflowing from his grace upon grace. The latter half of verse 16 tells us all things were created through him and for him, like the chef who brings the gourmet meal from Jesus, all things have come. It's all because of him. This tells us his supremacy. There's nothing that he's intimidated by, nothing that's bigger than him. It's all come through him and for him. And when it says for him, it gets at the fact that Jesus is the goal of creation. The end for which everything was made. It's for him and towards him. All things find their supreme reason for being and glorifying Jesus, including you. That famous catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we do so when by faith we look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are searching for your purpose, if you're searching for why you're here, your search ends with Jesus. And I pray his spirit gives you eyes to see him. North African theologian Augustine said, In a prayer, you have created us towards yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you because we are made for him towards Him, in service to Him, to please Him. That preposition for Him gives creation a sense of direction, like birds migrating. It gives all creation a sense of purpose. This is not random chance or meaningless molecules. We exist to glorify Christ. That is our reason for existence and our highest good, because the glory of Jesus The very glory of God is not like a black hole that just takes. The glory of God in Christ is overflowing, superabundant, boundless, and free. He is self-giving in his glory, seen most supremely in his cross. His glory is our very good. So when I say, and when the text tells us you exist for Christ, that is for his glory but also your greatest good. There is no greater supreme end for which we could exist than for him. He is so good, so kind, so merciful and gracious. Who were we that he would think of us, let alone take on flesh, live and die to save us? We exist for his glory. And that is your very good. He's the reason for the sun, for galaxies, for sports, for your job, for whatever your major is and what you're pursuing with it, for family, for relationships, for marriage, for singleness, for food and for air. It's for him. You exist for Christ. And that ought to set you free From trying to conjure up or search for purpose. That ought to set you free from the pressure of the major and getting a job correlated with my major and having the salary and all. We have to live real life, but you're not living life for real if you ain't living it for Him. Your purpose in life is not separate from the purpose of the person of Christ. And hear me clear, your life is unwasted to the extent in which you live it for Jesus. Christian, you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. And God has an eternity past preordained good works for you to carry out for the glory of Jesus and the good of his church as a saved Christian. He has a purpose for you in this generation, just like he did for David, as Acts thirteen thirty six tells us whether you are a missionary overseas or just living on mission here in Los Angeles, live an ordinary life extraordinarily for Jesus, and it has eternal implications when you do. And you live for the advancement of the gospel through faithful service and belonging in a local church. And this isn't philosophical nonsense. It's really practical truth. This should encourage us towards fruitful and faithful living rather than laziness, aimlessness, or indecision. We exist for him. You have gifts and skills for Jesus, for the good of the church, and for the blessing of the world who needs to know him. All is for our supreme Christ, including your secular job, including if homemaking is in your future, including your eyes, your hands, your speech, Your mind, your sleep, your mornings, your afternoons and nights, your emotions, your money, your washing the dishes, your every relationship. He sees it all, Christian. And it pleases the Lord when you lovingly live for him and dependent upon him in sweet communion with him. Nothing compares to Christ. Nothing can take his place. He's our trust. He's our reliance. He's our goal. It is all by him, through him, and for him. Verse 17 The Apostle Paul goes on. He says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This before all things speaks to the eternality of Christ. He's the eternal begotten Son from the Father. In other words, there's never a time where Jesus was not. In the Gospels, it frequently says what? Jesus was sent into the world. He was sent into the world because he's eternally existed, before the foundations of it. As I said, the manger was the beginning of his incarnation. Christ has existed for all eternity. Christ existed in glory with God the Father and in the fellowship of the Spirit in triune love and glory. And as Jesus said in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham, who lived on the earth thousands of years before him, before Abraham was, I am. He is supreme. He is before all things, before Muhammad, before Buddha, before the Big Bang, or whatever happened when God said, let there be light. Jesus was. Verse 17b says, in him all things hold together. And this gets at the fact that Jesus is not only the creator, but the sustainer. Or as Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Planets stay in orbit, seasons come and go, because in him all things hold together. And this includes your life when when the text says all things. He holds all things together in your life. As Mark 7.37 says, he does all things well. Your salvation held together by Christ. Your ongoing often slow, sanctification. In him, all things hold together. Throughout all the tragedies, the disappointments, the suffering, the delay, you may feel out of control, but Christ never loses control. If he did, everything would cease to exist. In him, all things hold together. Our all-supreme cosmic Christ is not distant in his deity, but a caring shepherd down to the details. No one cares for you like Jesus. In view of this cosmic, all-encompassing truth, there's so many things we could say in light of such verses. I just want to encourage you to behold with the eyes of your heart by faith this Savior. Behold and relish and start your worldview with the supremacy of Christ. Worship him. May your heart daily be given to being captivated by Him. You'll never exhaust His goodness and glory. May, your, may creation, your identity, your view of society, politics, eternity, whatever it is, may it be centered on Christ. Or as Colossians 2.8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. All in our lives ought to be according to Christ. And may we pursue a bigger and better view of Christ and more experientially taste and see that our Savior is good through his word, plumbing the depths of his gospel in communion and prayer and with the church together. Our boredom of Christ and the things of Christ is often just blindness. His glory is unsearchable. But perhaps more practically, I'll say this, as Pastor Paul Twist once said, worship Jesus, for when you worship well, you'll live wisely. And a text such as this is certainly a call to humility, A text such as this shows us the joy of self-forgetfulness as we take in the glory and greatness of our Savior. How wonderful it is to forget about ourselves and to just be completely wrapped up in him. A text such as this calls us to a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting life and secondarily being others-minded and self-forgetful. It's not about us, and that's a good thing. Things are best, and they're all about him. That's what we were made for. It's for him. So remember in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, sets forth the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ so that we cling to him in faith and worship. We've seen that Jesus is supreme over creation. Let's look at verses 18 through 20, his supremacy over the church. Christ's supremacy over the church. In verse 18, the text says, and he is the head of the body, the church. This tells us there's really no sacred, secular divide, specifically when it comes to Christ's supremacy. It's over all things, supreme over creation, but also the first fruits of the new creation, his church. Jesus is supreme over the church as our head, as our ultimate authority, as our chief shepherd. And his lordship over the church is shown by the Holy Spirit through his word. As our head, he builds his church up and also maintains his position as head. There's no pope, there's no pastor that takes the authority of headship from Jesus over the church. But notice what the church is called. His body. The very body of Christ. This all supreme cosmic son of God and Savior has united us to him by his spirit and through the gospel. As united as you are to your body, as united as your head is to your body, so are we, the church, united to Christ. As united as a bride is to her groom, so are we to Jesus. And this speaks to the beautiful humility of Christ in his incarnation, to take upon the likeness of our sinful flesh, to become the God-man, to die as our substitute, to r- raise as our mediator, and to unite us to himself, through redemption and reconcile us to God. Martin Luther, when thinking about the gospel, thought about a marriage. And he pictured Christ standing with us, his church, saying, all that I have, I give to you. And all that I am, I share with you. And that's the only way, by the grace of God, we know, Ephesians 1, all the blessings in the spiritual places. Because we are united with Christ. But in this union, we say to Jesus, all that I am, I give to you. Nothingness, sinfulness, wretchedness, all that I am, I share with you. And he bore it all on the cross. And in his resurrection makes us new. And our very identity is in Christ, united with Christ as his body, as his bride. He is the head, we are the body, we are his church. It speaks to his holy love, and it speaks to the joy we have in submitting to his headship, obeying his word, and serving really captivated by his compassion. But verse 18 goes on, and it says, he is the beginning. Jesus is the beginning, the originator, the pioneer of the church. He is the author of life and the founder and perfecter of our faith. Bill Gates, we could say, is the beginning of Microsoft, but with eternal significance. The second Adam is bringing about the new creation, the first fruits of that new creation being the church. Christ is our head and brought about the beginning of the church. But 18, verse 18 goes on and says he's the firstborn from the dead. And what this means is that Christ in his resurrection was vindicated, victorious, as our resurrected Redeemer and Lord. He's supreme over death and forever superior in his resurrection glory. It speaks to his superior status in his resurrection and all eternity. But verse 18, look how it ends. Everything's been moving towards this. It says that in everything, he might be preeminent. Christ is creator and sustainer. He's resurrected savior. He's the head of the church, all to the end of him having eternal preeminence. What this is telling us is that Jesus is and will be first over all with his people forever. And since Christ will be preeminent in his kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth eternally, he must be preeminent in every sermon, in every Bible study, in every small group, in all of our lives, as we encourage each other, as we pray for one another. The preeminence of Christ should be seen plainly in the church and throughout our lives. And notice in the text how it says that in everything, he might be preeminent. That means in every aspect of our lives, Christ ought to have first place preeminence. And verses 19 through 20 gives further reasons for Jesus' preeminence and supremacy over the church. Verse 19 tells us that Jesus is God with us. And verse 20, he's God for us. Look with me to verse 19. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 1995, I I, I doubt any of you would know this song, if not from a movie. I was only two, so it's not like I know it thoroughly. But in 1995, there was this song that came out, and this lady is singing, what if God was one of us? Such a, like, the, the lyrics get weird, but the whole song is her asking, what if God was one of us? But she's asking as if we don't know the answer. He was. He has come. And his name is the Lord Jesus. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. H.B. Charles said of this text, everything that makes God God found its home in Jesus. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon is bewildered after building the temple, saying, how can I build something that contains God? Nothing can contain you. And yet we see here the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ, the Word made flesh. And Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God's perfections eternally communicated to Christ Eternally possessed by Christ, he is the radiance and the brightness and the light of God's glory. And this is why he ought to be supreme and preeminent. And why he's sufficient for us. He's, he's Emmanuel, God with us. But verse 20, he's also God for us. Because, I don't know about you, when I read this text and I see the supremacy of Christ and the preeminence of Christ there's a part of my heart that jumps for joy, and I scream yes. And there's another part of me that's very convicted because I don't live this way like I should. And as, by the grace of God, a believer who knows Christ, I want him to be. But I know I still have so far to go, and even applying this or seeing the supremacy and preeminence of Christ in every single aspect of my life and my thought life, how I see myself, how I see other people. This is such an all-encompassing text. The weight of it, at first read, could feel like a lot. But verse 20 tells us, And through Christ, God was reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This text ends where we see God's glory, the glory of Christ shining most brightly at the cross. Through Christ, all things are reconciled to God. And what this doesn't mean is universal atonement or everyone will be saved. That's speaking to the universal impact of the death of Jesus upon the cross. God truly will make all things new. Christ came as a redeemer. He created all things and he will restore all things. But it speaks to that Christ alone is the reconciler and mediator between God and man. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Have you not lived with Christ as supreme? Have you sinned as an idolater and having someone or something over Christ? Have you fallen short? of the worldview and lifestyle such a text would set forth? Hear the beauty of the gospel. The one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things are made. The Holy One and the offended party took initiative to reconcile us, lawbreakers, to himself. God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us lawbreakers. Christ came and he lived as a perfect representative, fulfilling the law and the prophets. And he died as a perfect substitute, bearing the sin of all those who trust in him, declaring on the cross, it is finished, paid in full. In the mountain of your sins, if you trust in Jesus, has a cross on top of it. And Christ proclaims it is finished and his blood washes it all. And his resurrection vindicates and shows it to be true. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior to the uttermost. He is our Redeemer. He is the way through which you are reconciled to God, fallen image bearer. To be reconciled means that we are restored to God relationally. Enemies, lawbreakers, failures become friends, even children, through our mediator through our union with the Son of God. And the means through which Christ brought about this peace, it's glorious. The Supreme One over all creation shed blood on the cross. I love the possessive pronoun we see here in verse 20. Making peace by the blood of His cross. His cross. The eternal Son of God the all-supreme creator, humbled himself to take on the form of a servant, to be virgin born into this world, sent forth from the Father under the law, and and as our representative was tempted in every way without sin, lived a beautiful life of holy love, proclaimed himself as the good shepherd, and laid his life down for his sheep and the creator of all things. Let himself be laid down on a cross to bear our curse, our sin, and our shame. And he lives today in the good news of the gospel, the call of the gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Trust in him, rest in his finished work on the behalf of sinners. And Jesus himself said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And as we consider the greatness of our Savior If you have trusted him, what can snatch you out of his hands? All things are by him, through him, and for him. He who created our veins filled with blood took on flesh and shed blood to wash away our sins. Only the blood of Christ crucified can bring about peace with God and peace to your conscience Only the blood of Christ can wash away your sins, separating them from you as far as east is from the west. Only the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel's. Not for strict justice, but for mercy on those who trust him. The supreme Christ over all creation is an all-sufficient Savior for those who trust him and for his church. So may we hold fast to our head, like Colossians 2.19 says. Hold fast to Jesus, but rejoice as we sang this morning that he holds fast to us. Let the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ encourage you that whether in college or when you graduate, when you move, wherever you go, make sure you place yourself in a church submitted to our head to a good church, preaching and proclaiming Christ. He's supreme over all creation. Wherever you go, Christ remains. And as Colossians 1, 21 through 23, encourage us with, continue in the faith. Suffering will come, hardship will come. You will fall short, but continue in the faith. Because the object of our faith, the author and perfecter of the founder and finisher of our faith will keep us and know that in Christ there is a peace that surpasses understanding and can never be taken away. Sammy Rutherford, a pastor from Scotland in the sixteen hundreds, said, I think I see more of Christ. Than, I think I see more of Christ now than I've ever seen. Yet I see so little. Of what there is to be seen. So I leave you with Hosea 6 3. Let us press on to know the Lord. Let us know and let us press on to know the Lord. There is no greater joy than knowing Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your help. I thank you for your word and the glory of your Son. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith. Help us to run with endurance looking to him. Help us to live gladly under his supremacy, to rest soundly because of his sufficiency. We love you, Lord. Thank you that you first loved us. In Christ's name, amen.